0: Breaking Silos, Episode 4, SSI versus Federation with Steve Wilson.
1: Federation at the moment works really well. You, you can reuse identity across silos when there's not much at stake. So I can use my Twitter handle and I can log on to umpteen websites and the media organizations using my Twitter handle, but there's not much at stake when things are really um, risky. So we're talking about that level three and four, healthcare, government, banking, There's really still no precedent where you can use a vanilla identity. And it's because again, it's not about identity. It's not about who I am. It's actually more about what I am.
0: Self-sovereign identity or SSI is an exciting new technology that's gaining traction globally. SSI puts you in control of your digital life, enables magical user experiences and creates powerful new network effects. Welcome to Breaking Silos, the first program dedicated to the business models of self-sovereignty and the path to re-decentralizing the internet. I'm Timothy Ruff, your host and general partner at Digital Trust Ventures. Hello and welcome to Breaking Silos. I am your host. My name is Timothy Ruff and today... Uh, is episode four. We're going to be talking about self-sovereign identity, or SSI, versus federation. And we have a special guest I'll be introducing shortly. Uh, but I have a co-host today, and that is my partner uh, with Digital Trust Ventures, Dr. Sam Smith. And I haven't had him on before. I look forward to having an episode dedicated to uh, to Sam and his background and to Digital Trust Ventures. That will come sometime in the near future. Uh, but quick introduction of Sam. I consider Dr. Sam Smith to be the father of self-sovereign identity. He is the original architect of Sovereign, and that architecture has become the prevailing SSI architecture globally in terms of not storing things on the ledger and, and just the way uh, credentials are exchanged. That was his brainchild back in uh, 2015. He's got a PhD in electrical and computer engineering. He's been working in the intersection of AI, blockchain, and decentralized computing systems as both an entrepreneur and strategic consultant, and advised a number of blockchain-based organizations, including Sovereign Foundation, Consensus, and Hub. He's an expert in artificial intelligence, having designed autonomous submersibles, long before most of us had ever even heard of AI or ML. He's a student of open-source software technology and successfully advised numerous companies about open-source business models. He's written over a 100 refereed publications and continues to write seminal white papers on decentralized identity, reputation, key management, computing, and tokenomics, which you can find on GitHub at Smith Samuel M, including what I think may be his most important paper, about meta network effects and how transitive trust enables cooperative network effects that are bigger than any network effects we have yet seen uh, in in our uh, business world. Sam is also, of course, my partner at Digital Trust Ventures. Thank you for joining me on the podcast today, Sam. Oh,
2: you're welcome. And uh, I guess I owe you owe you lunch or something for for that lengthy introduction.
0: Well, of course, Sam. It's a real honor to be your partner. Our guest today has been in digital identity for 25 years. He's the managing director of Lockstep Consulting, an Australian research and advisory firm in digital identity and data protection established 15 years ago. Uh, He is the vice president and principal analyst at the Silicon Valley-based Constellation Research where he leads the digital safety and privacy business theme covering digital identity strategy and frameworks, authentication technologies, and privacy engineering. He's also over blockchain and distributed ledger technologies. Uh, also, I first encountered Steve on Twitter, where he was launching fiery criticisms toward the euphoric pronouncements of world takeover by the blockchain crowd, including criticisms of anyone attempting something related to blockchain identity, which, of course, included me. Uh, and he pulled no punches, but he always remained reasoned and rational in all of his takedowns. So I approached him, and we chatted, and we've been friends ever since. He even stayed the night at my house one time, and uh, I look forward to having him over again. So a warm welcome to my friend from Down Under, Mr. Steve Wilson.
1: Uh, cheers, Timothy. You're you're too kind. Um, great to be on with you and Sam. It's a, it's an honor. Thank you. Well, you bet. The thing that that interested
0: me in having you on the podcast was an exchange on Twitter. I tweeted out an article that I'd read about Australia's new national identity system, and I, I'd like for you to to uh, tell us what that's all about. But I I do want to just put that a little bit in the context of the tweet the tweet that I sent was about the article, not about the the national identity system. The article was uh, titled Australia's national digital ID is here, but the government's not talking about it, which I thought was very provocative. It was in a, a rag called the conversation. And I found that that article or blog is quite short uh, to be one of the, 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 simplest explanations of the fundamental flaws of federation and the potential advantages of self-sovereign identity and just kind of side by side that I had ever read. And so I just tweeted out saying, it's the best thing I've read. And, and I tweeted you, I called you out. And so you responded and you, you had, added, some, yeah. And so you, you had some wonderfully informative responses to that. So if you would tell us a little bit about what is that national system and if you could, your take on that article.
1: Well, the first thing to say is that it's not an identity system. And and the very fact that some well-informed people could um, describe it as an identity system when it's not um, goes to one of the conspicuous problems in this space, which is that we all use different words for what we're talking about. Identity Look, let's um, do a very brief history of, of identity in Australia. Just like the Anglophone countries, um, US, UK, uh, New Zealand, Canada, Australia, and a handful of other countries, the, the major English-speaking countries of the world have been doing this stuff ever since the dawn of e-commerce. And I go back to 1995 in this space with the work that um, the United Nations UNS2 Trial Group was doing, uh, work that the APEC, Asia-Pacific Economic Group was doing at at the dawn of e-commerce to try and work out um, how would you secure people online. And it also um, built on the work that the OECD did on data protection and privacy in 1980. So, some of these things go way, way back. Now, um, at different points in time, all of these countries, um, especially the UK and Australia, have dabbled with national identity, the idea of actually having an identity card with your photo on it, a bit like um, European countries or Asian countries. And look, um, all of the Anglophone countries um, are really allergic, culturally allergic to national ID. I think it might have been the Blair government 15 years ago in the UK had a go at this. A government in Australia in the 1980s tried to introduce a national ID called the Australia Card. Now, that, that um, phrase is sticky and it's, it's a term of abuse now in Australia amongst libertarians and amongst civil society in general we remain allergic to the idea of national ID. You know, the idea that you would um, have to show us your papers as you go through life is something that, that Aussies and, and Brits and, and Americans are largely, you know, deeply suspicious of. Now, nevertheless, let's park that idea. Nevertheless, of course, identifying yourself online, being able to prove your social security number or prove your credit card number, or even prove how old you are, you know these are um, primitive actions that are increasingly important, and, and they just dominate the way that you go through life. Everybody knows that identity is is a mess online. You, you sign up for a new website and you need to to prove who you are. You sign up for something really serious like a like a bank account online, um, or a, a, apply for a passport online, and this is serious stuff. So there's no doubt that um, being able to prove things about yourself online is super important. But you know we're not thinking so clearly about this. So All of that stuff that I talked about tends to get wrapped up under this moniker of identity. And uh, we are, frankly, we're obsessed with identity online. Um, So with that sort of, you know, melee, the Australian government for many years has been trying to work out a policy framework for governing and um, harmonizing the way that you deal with digital identity information. And technically, the thing is called the trusted digital identity framework. It's a policy framework it's it's a set of documents that are supposed to guide the way that banks and governments and businesses handle personal data online that article that you mentioned in the conversation wrapped it all up and said it's a national identity system now i've got two responses to that one you know to be fair it's not an identity system nobody in the australian government at this stage is trying to create an identity system they're trying to do something that's subtly different and i actually put it on the government i i I wonder why they've done such a bad job of allowing this thing to be misconceived.
0: Well, and hasn't there been a lot of money spent? Did I hear $200 million Australian or something
1: like that? Oh, that's a a lump sum that's been spent on a number of government sign-on initiatives. There's a thing called MyGov, which is a single sign-on username and password so that you can get into your tax affairs and get into your health records. And again, you know, the fact that MyGov has been... Um, allowed to be framed as a like a de facto national ID, that's a big, big problem. And and again, I put it on the government for having allowed that misconception to get about.
0: So how how was adoption for MyGov? Because it sounds similar to the intent of Gov UK Verify, which was recently sunsetted. I think it only achieved about three percent adoption, or four percent, or even less.
1: Again, subtly different, Timothy. The MyGov is really a single sign-on to government. It allows a mom and pop or anybody, I think, over like 13 years of age to have a single sign-on so that you can manage a number of your affairs. UK Verify was a, was a bigger idea to try and have a marketplace of digital identities that would be reusable across different contexts. So, these things are obviously big overlapping areas of concern. Now, with that backdrop, you know, I mentioned this Australia card that's been... Um, Sort of a, a taboo topic and sitting in the wings for a long time. There, in this current climate, there's obviously a number of national security advocates who actually think, "Hey, maybe a maybe a national ID is not a bad idea after all." I, I do not subscribe to that view, and few people do. But in the current climate of um of international anxiety, maybe the people have an appetite for national ID after all. So that's where the second response to this mess comes in and the conversation article was spot on when they said look you know what might be happening here is that there might be an agenda to do a national ID and it's really again on the government to, to answer that you know what are you really up to and the fact that the trusted digital identity framework has been um, ambiguous and it's still loose and vague in many ways and it also introduces things like um, biometrics and the idea that you would um take a selfie of yourself and let the government confirm that that's you all of this stuff starts to indeed look like a national ID, you know, by stealth. And that's certainly what the, what the conversation folks were worried about.
0: Let's, um, let's just take for a moment uh, an assumption. Let's presume that this is an identity system or it should be. And let's get into some of the things that you put in your responses. And these are things that I've read before, at least the substance of them, in papers that you've written in, in years past. And so this is this is not new thinking for you. But one of the one things that you tweeted was, "quote the trouble with the TDIF is it's based based on an orthodoxy that has proven untrue over the past decade." And then uh, there's a couple more. But if you would, what do you mean? What's the orthodoxy that's proven untrue?
1: You bet. Look, um, identity uh, for twenty years and has been, um. Shaped our, our thinking has been formed and shaped um, by a whole bunch of metaphors and um, a whole bunch of intuitions about what this thing, identity, is. And if you you know cast your mind back for twenty years, you'll think about the wax seals and the envelopes, the handwritten digital signatures that we um that we imagine. We have hierarchies, um, sometimes imagined hierarchies about how identity works. We talk about electronic passports. Um, that's a great metaphor, and it's really bad. There was the there was the info card metaphor, an actual program that Microsoft initiated. Really interesting, the idea of using the visual metaphor of a card and a wallet of cards, and even federation is a metaphor. You know, political federations in the United States and Canada and Australia these are these are pretty well understood social constructs, and we use that metaphor in identity to say, look, there are different sort of territories in identity out there. There are different silos and. Domains of identity, and wouldn't it be good if we could sort of cooperate and, and join them up somehow. the The metaphor, the dominant metaphor, if you really think about it, is that identity is a thing. It, it's like you look in your wallet or your purse and you'll find in my case, I'll find like fifteen different pieces of plastic. they're all labeled Steve Wilson, and it looks as though my identity is manifest in fifteen or twenty different plastic cards. but they're all, they're all intuitively me. They, they all say Steve Wilson and they're all under my control. And they're all a pain in the ass, um, pardon my French. You know, it's terrible really that I've got five different bank accounts or it's terrible really that my driver's license is separate from my Medicare card. The idea that, that identity is a thing that we can federate and we can trade and we can provide, you know, we talk about identity providers being potentially banks and governments that would, um, instead of just giving you a bank card, they would give you something that we think would be much more big and powerful. It would be some sort of digital identity thing um, on your phone or in the cloud. And it's something that you would go and maybe pay for. Um, You'd go to the post office maybe and get yourself a digital identity. Now, the orthodoxy is that there will be a marketplace of identity providers and there will be a whole bunch of identity consumers. Everybody that needs to know who Timothy Ruff is could, in this new world, um, find that information by going to one of these identity providers. It's a mercantile model. The idea is that identity is a good or a service that's going to be provided and traded and paid for. Now, we've had that sort of assumption ever since Microsoft came up with a thing called the identity meta system and the laws of identity. And subsequent to that, um, the United Kingdom came up with Verify.gov. I forget what it was called 12 years ago. But certainly in the U.S., the Obama administration came up with NSTIC, the National Strategy for Trusted Identities in Cyberspace. Um, you know what? Um, a bit of sort of pseudo-national pride, Australia was the first. In 1998, Australia came up with something called the National Authentication Authority, and it was all about providing identity and consuming identity. Now, I, I tweeted that all of this is false because, you know, just look at the facts. um did indeed fold up recently. Um, NSTIC in the US was thought to provide a marketplace where students could use their cards to log on to their health records and log on to their banking never happened never even came close Yeah, no one
0: very few have heard of NSTIC.
1: well that's a, that's a story in itself you know the 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 mostly the obama government spent i think 40 million dollars on some really interesting pilots and you know don't get me wrong there was some good r and d done but we never came close to the vision of being able to um Wander around cyberspace freely using your student card to log on to your bank, and um, I think that that's where the orthodoxy needs to be reframed. I mean, if if you've been doing something like this for 20 years in IT, for God's sake, now, IT is famous for moving at light speed. Even cybersecurity moves fast. But in the 20 years that we that we identity have been on the scene, you know, the MySpace has come and gone. We've had the the iPhone has has come up. We've got Twitter is new in that time frame, and meanwhile we are are still arguing about definitions. Like it's it's time to reframe and to really have a critical look at why is this thing harder than it looks? You know, it's easier said than done to federate identity. It's a mystery. And we haven't really engaged with why it's so hard.
0: So it, it hasn't worked. And it's, it's more than just hasn't worked once or twice or this way or that. It's, it's been tried over and over and over and has never worked and has really never come close and you, there's another quote here that that you put. As far as I know, there are not examples anywhere in the world where uh, of LO, LOA 3 or 4 digital identity being accepted on its face by an LOA 3 or 4 relying party. Mm. And this, I, I want you to talk a little bit about this, and this starts to get into why I really wanted Sam here for reinforcement because we'll start talking about how uh, potentially SSI can uh, enable exchange of LOA 3 and 4 credentials in a way that federations have not been able to.
1: Let's spend a minute on definitions. LOA 3, 4, this, this jargon um, is about the strength of identity. The idea is that there would be four or five standard strengths of identity from zero up to four, and LOA means level of assurance. So, it's the intuitive idea that, you know, you and me, Timothy, we, we got to know each other over email and It was good enough to know that your name was Timothy Rufford Evanim. And, you know, if if I wanted to buy a car from you, or if you were a banker and I wanted to open a bank account with you, then at some stage we're going to have to know each other better. So there's this intuitive idea that you can have a a casual, even anonymous relationship at, at level zero. And then, you know, if you are starting to be, you know, maybe I'm your patient and we should have level one. And ultimately, if you're going to give me a passport, then it has to be level four. That that in itself, that assumption in itself is actually really badly flawed. Um, it's it's a pigeonholing system. The idea is that we would have four types of identity everywhere in the world, and you're going to fit into one of those buckets: one, two, three, four.
0: But let me push back on that. So, if you take away the the pigeonholing, which is a, a leap on t- the concept that you just explained makes perfect sense. Identities like Shrek. It's like an onion, right? It's like there's a zero and a one and a two and a three and a four, and everybody can relate to that. Sometimes they need stronger authentication of your identity than other times. But the next step that you're saying that people take that premise, which I think is fine and agreeable, and then say, we're going to now issue a level one, a level two, and you're going to walk around
1: with a level one or a level two. That's the flaw. Is that what you're saying? Uh, yes, but I, I do even challenge that the idea of one, two, three, four as discrete levels. I think that that's flawed. It's one of these false intuitions. People think that a passport is level four and they think that a, a bank card is level two. Um, when it really comes down to it, when you try and computerize, this is where things break. Computers are unforgiving. Um, algorithms are, are literally digital. It's It's yes or no. And when you really come down to it and say, look, um, I've got one of these level two um, identities from the post office, and now I want to log on to my health record. Now, what's going on there? The health record provider is going to say, what do I really need to know about Steve Wilson? I really need to know that he is a patient of this hospital, and then I'm going to let him into his health record. But if I, if I wander in with a vanilla level two identity say, hey, this is Steve Wilson, it actually leaves too much to the imagination because the the hospital still doesn't know that I'm actually the patient.
0: Okay, okay. So, so really, what the hospital they need more context. They Just need
1: context and they, nuance. Yeah.
0: They need context and nuance so they can make a decision. the The number one thing that they would probably accept is a credential that they issued if if they could, because they see that they signed. If it were cryptographically issued, they could see that they signed it with their own key and they exactly. could present it back and that kind of thing. But aside from that if you just have your 15 Steve Wilson cards and you lay them all out on the counter there's a business decision that whoever you present them to to make a decision based on the context of what they're trying to allow Steve Wilson to do if any of these cards add up to something sufficient
1: yeah so the um i think the word relationship has come into this conversation um before the you know i've got a relationship as a patient with a hospital i've got a different relationship with a bank and you know the bank gives me a a bank card. I've got a different relationship with government, so they give me different credentials. Yes, it's it's very hard that we wind up with so many of these things. And when you digitize them, they turn into usernames and passwords and a total mess. So I'm not denying the reality of the problem, but I'm absolutely saying that if you apply these, these flawed metaphors that these things have really got different levels of assurance and it's all the same Steve Wilson, then then things get really fragile and really unforgiving, and, and, and we know how these things break. Federation at the moment works really well. You, you can reuse identity across silos when there's not much at stake. So I can use my Twitter handle and I can log on to on10 websites and the media organisations using my Twitter handle, but there's not much at stake when things are really um, risky. So we're talking about that level three and four, healthcare, government, banking. There's really still no precedent where you can use a vanilla identity. And it's because, again, it's not about identity. It's not about who I am. It's actually more about what I am.
0: I love the topic of it's not uh, who you are, it's what you are. I get onto a plane. I don't care that the pilot's name is Kevin. I care that he's licensed (laughs) to fly the plane, right? Yeah. Uh, And and so there's, I I love that, but I I don't want to go there. I want to go where you were just going a moment ago, and that is, low stakes, high stakes and liability. And, and you, you have said, and I think it's very insightful and I, and I haven't seen anyone rebut this. I haven't even seen anyone attempt to that. The reason these federations don't work is because they're unwilling to accept the liability of someone else doing the authentication work that they need to perform.
1: That's it. That's it. Um, Look, a lot of hard work has gone into liability. Don't get me wrong, and there are there are a few schemes around the world. Concierge in Canada comes to mind, where they have worked out, tried to work out liability. So that Concierge is a is a joint venture between banks and telcos, and government in Canada, where um, you can get an identity from a bank, and it will work to log on to your government, and vice versa. And so it really streamlines identification in in some um, applications in Canada. It's terrific. But if you drop down a level and try and work out what's going on, um, one of the banks in that system will give you a general purpose identity, and that identity has got some allowable uses. You know, It's got terms and conditions that go with it, and you are allowed to, um, and it's accepted by um, a whole bunch of other services in that club. Let's, Let's call it a club. It's a big association of banks and agencies and telcos that have come together and agreed on the rules and done a lot of hard work. It's terrific. What happens when somebody else wants to join the club? What happens when, and this is a real problem, um, you've got a concierge identity and you can log on to all sorts of Canadian government things, but then you say, hey, I want to um, apply for a visa to go to Australia, so can I log on to the Australian website and use my concierge identity? Well, just imagine you're the Australian government running a website and somebody from the other side of the world tries to log on with something that you've never heard of before. What do you do? Now, there's a precedent for this. The best precedent is, in fact, the credit card schemes, you know, Visa and MasterCard. I can I can carry a Visa card from Australia and I can go to Mongolia and I can buy a coffee at a shop that accepts Visa card. <laughs> if I am wandering around the world with a diner's club card and I try and buy a coffee in Canada and the coffee shop says, sorry, sir, we don't accept diner's card, that's because... There's like this huge club of Visa and MasterCard participants, banks, merchants, issuers, customers, and they've all agreed on a set of rules, and those rules are different from diners' club. If I want to be part of the diners' club community, um, I can't force anybody to take diners. I have to just hope that the community will accept it. Now, that's what that's what federated identity is all about. It's, it's much, much harder than credit cards because credit cards are just about a, a fairly small amount of money I'm um, going to change hands over 60 days but identity is, is like that you need to have a set of rules you need to have um, liability worked out if, if somebody you know if somebody presents a, a visa card in Mongolia from Australia and it turns out to be f- a, a fake card everybody knows what happens and, and there's relatively little damage but if somebody um, from Canada wants to go to the Australian government website with a, with a concierge identity, and apply for a visa to f- travel the country. Um, the stakes are really high, and in fact, the liability is open-ended. Nobody really knows how to put a price on that, and that's where federated identity at that at that high level has come unstuck. And um, look, thanks for giving me a few minutes to explain that, Timothy, because it's it's a subtle issue. But thanks for for calling it out. I, I don't see at this stage any breakthrough. I don't think anybody's engaging with that issue of what happens if an identity goes wrong. And who's going to, you know, what are the consequences going to be?
0: So I do think there's some solutions here that are with SSI. uh, And uh, let's talk about them because I think there was a time when you shot down one of my ideas and there was a time when I shot down one of your criticisms. Yep. And I think that we, we, uh, we, we reached a place of mutual respect on the issue that there, there might be a future conversation. Well, today is that future conversation. And yeah, I want to no, thank
1: you for that. It's, this has been a, a good journey for us over what five or six years now.
0: Yeah, it's been a while. Um, now from the article and the conversation, there's a quote. It, and by the way, the conversation is the name of the rag where we got, where I found this article that kind of started all this. Here's the quote. Self-sovereign systems offer the same functions and capabilities as the DTA's federated system, and they do so without funneling users through government-controlled identity providers. Instead, self-sovereign systems, uh, excuse me, self-sovereign systems let users create, manage, and use multiple discrete digital identities. Each identity can be tailored to its function with different attributes attached according to necessity. And that's exactly the way I understand it. I think they worded it very well there. And... I, I was very encouraged by the article. I, I like the fact that the conversation was was being had. I like it that there were some academics external to the people that any of us have been talking to that kind of picked up on the friction between the two and the problems that you've been pointing out. And they didn't even know about you. They they reached out to me separately. I had a conversation with them a couple of days ago and and introduced them to you to get even deeper information about the stuff that they were writing about. But you, you still one of the tweets you sent to be to be full disclosure here to be fair you basically said you didn't see SSI as a feasible solution or a feasible alternative. And maybe that's too strong of a word, but why, what's wrong with, where did they go wrong? What's the limitation with SSI?
1: Uh, I th- I just don't think that SSI is ready. <clears throat> I think that it's been um, new and the, the specific objection I had to the article was just that they used the term SSI technology. And to me that is just not a thing yet. SSI, has been with us for a few years now. Um, It's a melting pot of some intensely important ideas and some very important responses to the identity problem. We've got too much identity, it gets stolen, the privacy is terrible. We need a a real revolt against surveillance capitalism. Um, People want to get more control over their data and they want to get more control over how they're treated online. I get all of that. And SSI is sort of a melting pot of responses to that that is now beginning to settle into some technologies. Um, the World Wide Web Consortium is obviously picking up work that um, Evanim kicked off, and, and you guys are absolute pioneers in this area, work that's been done on verified claims and Manu Sporny's work, um, the work of Christopher Allen and, and Drummond Reed, and that community is now being, um, you know, uh, forged in the, um, the furnace of standards bodies and, and is turning into what will eventually be technologies I think that the academics have simply overstated um, and they're potentially going to create some confusion by using the term sSI technology. I just don't know what that means yet so, I'll,
0: I'll grant you I'll grant you one point, and that is it's not it's not ready it's it's uh it's 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 ready for some applications it is ready to go into production in some ways. the user experience still isn't settled uh the ability to manage a whole bunch of keys still isn't subtle. There's a few things that that are opportunities, frankly, for entrepreneurs to to step in and and solve. But there's a foundational concept here that I think that they hit on in this article that hits near and dear to my heart that I want to I want to see if you have a counter to. And that foundational principle is that there isn't an administrator over my identity that people go check with. They can check with me because now I have the ability to carry credentials that are cryptographic in strength. And when I present them, they're not, they're not, they don't have to trust me. Even though I'm the courier, the carrier, they don't have to trust me. The credential I present is strong enough that they can verify the original source of that credential. So the breakthrough to me is the elimination of the middleman, the IDP. And, and actually maybe it's more accurately said, the individual becomes the identity provider. I am now my own identity provider because I can carry credentials given to me by anybody about anything and present them to anybody I choose. And the recipient now can choose to accept that or not. So conceptually, do you have any any beef or, or problem with that conceptually? Is it just the readiness of it, but you're okay with the concept?
1: The missing piece of that story, Timothy, is still the what and not the who. So what's still missing, and the thing that people need to establish on a per-transaction basis is is things like, what is your credit card number, and are you really over 18, and who says that you're over 18? So look, my take on this is that SSI is producing a really um, robust new way of doing what we used to call bring your own identity. If somebody has a cryptographically verifiable wallet or a holder for a bunch of claims, a bunch of verified claims, a bunch of... Um verified pieces of information about themselves. and that's real goodness. and I, I do see that SSI and some of the new work that's been done on uh, decentralized identity is is going to provide those those tools. but I, I think we're still a long way from being able to 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 say, look, there is an ecosystem of um, sources of truth that are going to be available in a framework. Where people can can ask questions like, "How old is Timothy Ruff?" or "Is Timothy Ruff really an American citizen?" or um, "Does Timothy Ruff really have an engineering degree from MIT?" Um, that that's that's the end game, and um, I think that SSI is helping us get there. But I still don't see how SSI cracks that particular problem.
0: And I think we're getting to the heart of it. You wrote, "I have so many questions for you," but I I, I want to read something that you wrote recently in an email exchange. You wrote, I am myself dismayed that verifiable credentials or verified claims, it's, it's now verifiable credentials, not verified, um, have been linked so strongly to blockchain more mature PKI certificate-based ways of binding claims to subjects, devices, and issuers have been available for fifteen years, and they're certainly more mature. They're certainly been around longer, but I think they're behind the times. And I I want, um, you know, maybe you can, uh, Steve, just briefly kind of elaborate on what you meant there, if I mischaracterized it in any way, or you would restate it. But I would like Sam to to kind of talk about uh, or to address that concern, that dismay that you are
1: expressing. Thanks, Timothy. Um, Lockstep's got skin in this game. We have been working on um, orthodox public key ways of doing this for a long time. We actually, with some foresight, coined the term relationship certificates in work that we did with the Australian government um, about 15 years ago, where we use conventional X-509 certificates to hold a verified claim about somebody. For example, you are a doctor, um, board certified Um, government um, licensed. And we put that fact into a digital certificate and then bound the certificate to a smart card that the doctor could then use in a hospital situation. And it's very much like the verified claims pattern or the the verifiable claims pattern. You have a source of truth who's willing to sign a digital um, item that says, you know, the holder of this key um, happens to be a board certified physician. And then you bind that to a you know, what we these days call a, a wallet or a or an edge agent. But in the old days it was a smart card. So these ideas that you put you know, the pattern is that you have a, a, a key pair that's under the control of the user. You say and patent. A pattern, pattern, like an architectural pattern.
0: Pattern. Oh, okay.
1: Yeah. So this this pattern I think is really stable and in, in some ways I think that self sovereign identity has refreshed the pattern. Um but you know the pieces of it have, have been well recognised, I think, for some years. You have a, a key pair that is bound to a person. The private key is kept in a piece of hardware that the person controls. So there's some binding. Um, you have a third party source of truth that's willing to sign a an assertion or a claim or a piece of data about somebody. The trick is how do you get that signed piece of data to be bound up with those other things, the key pair and the and the key carrier. So self sovereign comes along with some new ideas to um, have people generate their own key pair and um, to use maybe blockchain to make sure that the, that the key pair is robust and stable over time. The important thing about blockchain and some of the self-sovereign things too is just about originality. Um, if if I come out of nowhere, I come out of the jungle and generate a key pair, um, how does anybody know that it's really Steve Wilson's key pair? And there there's a really nice trick um, that you guys invented to to do that in a blockchain. If you can um, be the first to generate a key pair and put that on a ledger. Then the crowd agrees. The crowd says, Hey, we've never seen that key pair before. And if, if Timothy's claiming it's his, then we're going to believe now that it's his.
0: There's a better trick than that. Uh, it's uh, the real root of trust is entropy. We'll dive into that another, another time and Sam That'd will talk great. about that. But Sam, um, I'd, I'd like you to jump in. You've been extremely patient as it kind of dove into uh, the backdrop to get to this, but I see this as kind of the meat of why we wanted to so, talk today. Yeah,
2: so I think there's some very subtle nuances that I agree with Steve that the technology you know, and, and all the infrastructure isn't there yet, and there's, there's some chicken and egg problems with it, but the internet also started in a similar way, and it solved a problem well enough that... It grew beyond its original design. But one of the things, Steve, you said, you said the, the, identi- the public key, the public private key pair is bound to the individual. And that's a really interesting statement because how strong that binding is determines um, the security of the identifier. And I don't like to use the term identity because every time I get in a room with Identarati and you say, def- and they say, define identity. Every single person in the room has a different <laughs> definition. I mean, you may have been in some of those discussions. So I've
1: been in those rooms. <laughs> yes.
2: So I, I, I try to keep it much simpler, and I say, uh, it, when I use the term identity, I mean you have identifiers, and you have attributes that may be associated with those identifiers, and so everything about everything that I care about is the generation and control of the identifiers. And then if I have control over the identifier, then any attestations that are made about attributes have uh, the, I can make consistent attributions. And so that's the first layer of getting to the what, right? It's It's still at the who, but consistent attribution is the first thing you have to have before you can get to the what. And then attestations made by trusted parties allows you to get to the what. But those trusted parties also have to have consistent attribution. And so it's consistent attribution all the way down. And, and if you, if you bypass that anywhere in the system, then you open yourself to security exploits. And that's really the problem with administrative identity. It isn't that the pattern of a public private key pair and PKI hasn't been around for a long time. The problem is, is that the binding between the public private key pair and the identifier is based on the administrator. The administrator is making that binding, which means the infrastructure that the administrator uses to make that binding is subject to exploit. A disgruntled employee, a hacker, a server that's not locked down, and all of a sudden, you now have bindings between key pairs that aren't authoritative. They're fraudulent based on external input, uh, exploit because you haven't locked down cryptographically the binding between the the, the controller of the key pair and the identifier. And so the, the solution, which has been around since the nineties, but nobody cared about it back in the nineties is, is, uh, back then the terminology used in the, in the literature it was called a self-certifying identifier. And with the self-certifying identifier, you don't need to depend on any infrastructure, at least at the incepting and the binding of the key pair to, to the controller of the private key. Because the public key is embedded in the identifier. And only the cr- only the person that creates the private key, which comes from a random seed, which any individual can can gather, and that the term I use is entropy. And what do you mean by entropy? But from an the information theory point of view, randomness is measured in, in entropy. So if I have a sufficient entropy, I can generate a random number that has collision resistance. Nobody else can generate that same random number. And so a large enough random number like 128 bits uh, is sufficiently large that the probability of anybody ever being able to generate that on their own is, and, and guess mine, right? I mean, the, the point is they're trying to guess the one that I have, is it, too large. It, it's never going to happen.
0: Well, Sam, didn't, didn't you tell me that uh, 128 bits is more than all of the atoms in the universe or something like that?
2: Oh, Yeah, it's, it's some big number. Um, it might be like, like on the surface of the earth or something like that, like the number, you know, it's, it's a pretty big number. It's whether it's, you know, but it, it's a big enough number that it, that, uh, that if you had, I think I worked the numbers, if you had a trillion supercomputers running at, uh, at a, at, at the fastest speed, it would take a trillion years for them to guess all of those numbers. Um, so, so there are
1: some assumptions there, which I hope we're going to come to.
2: Yeah. The, so, yeah, if you have, you know obviously you're assuming that you haven't got to a quantum uh system and some things like that but at, given the current technology that the assumption that right now cryptographic strength is 128 bits so now i have an identifier that is strongly bound to the source of the entropy so the source of truth is the person that is the entity that co- that collected the the random seed in the first place and they alone are sovereign over that source of truth So the root of trust now is that I have a public key that is strongly bound to the identifier because the public key is embedded in the identifier and it's strongly bound to the controller of the private key. There is no administrator, there is no infrastructure, there's nothing between that. So now I have a root of trust that's cryptographic. So Sam,
0: just to be clear, that root of trust does not prove that you're Sam. It doesn't try to, it doesn't need to all it does is prove consistency, right?
2: Right. Consistent attribution. So I can sign statements with the private key that anybody can verify using the public key in the identifier. So they can track because those signatures are non-reputable, which means I can't ever deny, I can't deny that that I, I, there's no way for me to get out of the fact that that if they verified with the public key, then they must have been signed with the private key. And as long as I don't give up control of my private key to some other entity, which is a completely different topic about fraud, but let, but we're we're talking yeah, about. Let's not let's you know, not go
0: into key management right now.
2: Right. But, But, well, but we're talking about external exploit. If I want to prove control over it and I don't do stupid things, then, then I have a a cryptographic root of trust. Now, given that I can make consistent attributions, anybody who, who verifies can then see that I'm being consistent. And, and therefore that becomes the first layer of trust. If I don't have that, then nothing that I say is valid. And so the problem with administrative identity is that the binding is not so strong that someone can't hack into the system, can't suburn the administrator, and therefore produce public-private key pairs and associate them with an identifier that aren't controlled by the individual who supposedly is the controller of the identifier. So That's the problem that we have to fix first. And In the process of fixing that problem, we've gotten rid of administrators. We don't need them anymore. Now, what we do need is we need infrastructure to be able to rotate keys. So if I don't ever need to rotate, then I don't need anything. I'm done. I, I have a cryptographic root of trust. I can use that identifier. But if but if I've, for some reason, because of uh, advances in cri- crypto or just best practices, years, recommend best practices. Yeah, or or quantum, whatever. At some point, the the signature scheme is no longer cryptographically strong. I need to rotate my public private key pair to a new public private key pair but i also want to use the same identifier right if i can just abandon the identifier then i can just create a new identifier and say hey this is this is my identifier but no one knows that it's the same identifier there's no there's no linkage
0: we could we could we could geek out on this for a while <laughs> right i know but, but
2: but but it's really important because the point where you need infrastructure is not at the creation of the ident- identifier it's to be able to rotate the public private key pair
0: but abstract that go, start, go up go up one more but level but, now, but
2: i don't need i don't need a blockchain to do the rotation i don't need an administrator to do the so rotation
0: go up one more level to the relevance of that point to a ca based system for verifiable credentials to steves to steves comment about gosh why, why do we need to do this on blockchain uh, why shouldn't we just use a well, traditional I agree. CA? You don't
2: need to do it on. You don't need to do do it on blockchain. But CAs are pro- so. So the fix for CAs is something called Certificate Transparency, and Certificate Transparency is uh, an immutable log of all of the assertions made by a certificate authority about their identifiers and public-private key pairs. And because that it's immutable log, it can do a consistency proof that says, has there been an inconsistent statement made by the certificate authority? As soon as the certificate authority makes an inconsistent statement, we know not to trust it. So you can't prevent it from being suborned, you can't prevent it from being hacked, but you but you can detect duplicity. Right. So the key is duplicity detection, it's consistent attribution. If I can detect duplicity, then all of the exploits exhibit as duplicitous statements. So duplicity detection doesn't require blockchain. It just requires immutable event logs.
0: Pause for a second. Steve, how much of this have you heard before? And do you do you have a does it is it a rebuttal? Does it sound and do you have a rebuttal or are you two agreeing?
1: Um I think the point of disagreement is actually some of the starting assumptions and about the caliber of the problem that we're trying to solve. So this, this can get political. Um, I remind people that the roots of blockchain are political insofar as the, the, the one problem that Nakamoto um, was, was, um, was obsessed with was um, fiat currency and central regulation and central administration. And um, you can have a political view about the problem with um, central banks and you can um, try and solve that problem with some clever technology and produce a non-fiat peer-to-peer Cryptocurrency, absolute genius, um, but I, I I class that as a political problem. And reasonable people can disagree about whether or not fiat currency is 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 a problem that needs to be solved. I think what's happening with a lot of the self of the roots of self sovereign identity goes to things like the rebooting web of trust movement. And I think that there's a political assumption there, which is that um, administrative identity. Is intrinsically something that's undesirable, and intrinsically something that people want to get um, move away from. Now, at that point, we might just have to agree to disagree. Um, the common ground is that there is a real vulnerability with administrative uh, identity, and Sam's absolutely right that administrators um, hold the keys to the kingdom, sometimes quite literally, and they can get up to no good. The one example that I think stands out is the um, the misadventure of the Komodo Certificate Authority, which. Um, um, due to uh, internal corrupt practices, were issuing bad um, SSL service certificates, and um you know there was a terrible price to pay for that. I'm actually not aware, and and I stand to be corrected, but I'm not aware of a comparable problem in fact with any other certificate authority. Moreover, when we talk about administrative identity, if we accept that things like credit card systems are, are, are similar, um, you've got a hierarchy of um, roots of trust and Um, national regulators and then um, big banks and small banks and there's a a, um, a hierarchy whereby a little bank in Outback Queensland in Australia can issue a Visa card and all of that chains together um, through cryptography and through business processes and agreements. Um, You wind up with a big, really big administrative um, ID. Take Sam's point, let's talk about identifiers, not identities. I'm not aware of any case ever where there's been a significant hack of credit cards. I'm not aware anywhere of a of a significant inside attack on the on the telephone system where you've got billions upon billions of administrative um, identities identifiers um, sitting in SIM cards. So with respect, I, I I just figure that a lot of this stuff about the the, re, the response to administrative identity and all the effort that we're putting into coming up with self-sovereign. So, identifiers I, I, yeah I, I, I don't, just don't that I don't, see want, that it's I don't a want to, go, to, don't want to go in
2: the political way down that path um, it's more it it's I mean there there are lots of exploits that don't make it public because the people being exploited go to great lengths to to hide hide that so so there's quite a bit more in certificate authorities than just the Komodo example but if but I agree that if you're following best practices and you have really good IT people and you build a really good system. You can make it very, very difficult to exploit to the point to where, um, yeah, it, it, it's not, it doesn't happen or happens so rarely that you don't care. The difference is that you've built a very complex system. The systems are getting increasingly complex and that comes at a cost. It comes at a cost. Of transactions, it comes at a cost of doing business, of people, you know, engaging in business, and and those costs enable, you know, hurt everyone because because complex systems are more costly. So so the the desire is less about hey it can't work, administrative identity can't work. It's that if we could do highly secure identity systems that had comparable or better levels of security and do them much simpler at reduced transaction costs then every part of our economic activity would would be less expensive and we would induce a different type of of market it's like and that's why i said the internet did this it was a great mm. it, it changed you know before the internet communication was administrative and then the internet made it peer to peer and right now, administrative identity means you have trust domains. Each administrative identity is a trust domain. And whether that's a really trustworthy domain or not is less important than the fact that they're different domains, and the only way to move value between those domains is to cross those boundaries, and crossing those boundaries comes at a transaction cost.
0: I'm glad you went there. Uh, I want to tie that back to the very uh, first you know, point that we brought up about Australia system and federations because I believe that self-sovereign identity can solve this in an unexpected way. And we have to eliminate one presumption. The one presumption is that an entity needs to accept credentials that were issued by a different entity outside their trust domain. Sam just talked about hopping trust domains. And yes, self-sovereign identity enables that technically, but it doesn't solve the liability problem, right? So when you go between two banks, for example, accepting the KYC work done for, for the other bank, that, that's probably a bridge too far today. Even though it technically, you know, could be done with self-sovereign identity. But here's the untalked about potential solution that I see. What if the issuers, excuse me, the relying parties only accepted credentials they issued? That sounds suspiciously Mm. like usernames and passwords. But the difference here, of course, it's not freaking usernames and passwords. It's, that's a something you know factor, which anyone can either guess or hack or intercept or look over your shoulder or whatever. And we have all the, you know, 85 or I think it was 95% of the breaches are, are ultimately the culprit is some password along the way. We can actually move from the something you know factor. To is something you have factor a cryptographic credential, and so even if if we go to the risk uh, obstacle for adoption, even if the only credentials accepted by a relying party are credentials they issued, self sovereign identity enables the same bank, the same driver's license, whoever it is, to become an issuer. We don't have to wait for a CA to do their and good. This goes back to the complexity of the CA system. The, the stronger the security, the more complex the CA system is with self-sovereign identity, Ed, anybody can issue. And with the entropy of the key, you can prove that it's still the same issuer, right, when they, they go look it up. What's, the, what's wrong with that?
1: that? That brings me to my main practical concern about all of this. I've got, I've got the philosophical or the, the political concern that um, I think, the, I think the, the founding assumptions of self-sovereign identity are, are based on a problem that I think has been overstated, um, I think Sam makes a good point that the, the highly secure, highly administered s- systems are expensive. Um, but I think that you get what you pay for. So my practical problem with what you've just described, Timothy, is just how do you know that the source of entropy that that people are self-sovereign over, uh, what do you know about it? that entropy? Entropy is only as good as its implementation. My concern about self-sovereign identity as painted is that it's a bit of a Wild West situation where People are generating their own key pairs and they are quote-unquote sovereign about that. I don't know that I want to be sovereign about a random number generator. Um, I want, I think, and I'm speaking like on behalf of a whole system, if I'm part of an identifier system, I want to make sure that everybody is using um, known good sources of entropy, that is to say, certifiable true random number generators. I want to know that those random number generators are properly operated, properly coded. I want to know actually that they're sitting in a certified piece of hardware like a a bank-certified chip or a telco-certified SIM card. Um, I want to know that the algorithms have been tested and that they're standard's compliant. And I want to know that every five years or, you know, God forbid if quantum um, cryptography comes along, quantum computing rather, um, I want to know that there's an orderly way in which everybody's cryptographic algorithms get updated. So that's what you pay for. Yes, running a big PKI is expensive, but everybody's using their own good software. That, that's, that you get what no, you pay for. I,
2: I absolutely agree with you on everything you just said, and that comes to decentralized key management infrastructure. Can you get verifiable attestations about how the keys have been managed, how often they've been rotated, what the source of entropy was, where was it generated? such that anybody can verify it. I use the term ambient verifiability. If anyone can verify it, then a person can do it. It doesn't require an administ- You don't have to trust the administrator because you can verify that what they did. There's a new standard, the IETF and the Trusted Computing Group are developing called Implicit Identity, where uh, small, low-resource chips will have cryptographic strength generators of... Of, of entropy to generate public-private key pairs that happens on first power-up of the chip. And then that chip can make remote attestations. There's an IETF remote attestation standard about the provenance of that um, public-private key pair that's in the chip. And that can be embedded in any device. These, these are designed to be embedded in any device. So, yeah, I would say, hmm, if I want to... That's very cool I, technology. I, yeah, if I want to have a self-sovereign identity system, then I can say, we'll make an attestation that you're using a, it's called dice is the name of the, that you're using a dice chip to generate your random number. If you did, then I'll accept your uh, non-reputable statements. If not, then I, I choose not to trust you.
1: That, that's absolutely core cool capability and I, and I love it. Um, I, I wonder whether we, we, we wind up, you know, squeezing a, a, a metaphorical balloon to, to remove one particular sticking point and then it just emerges somewhere else, which is to say um, at some level we, we, we need some central coordination, if not administration, to make sure that everybody in the um, self-sovereign community is using these DICE chips and we need to know that the DICE chips are good and we need to know that the DICE chips are being correctly implemented in, in software. You know, the, there's all sorts of um, quality issues about um, the interfaces between hardware security modules and software.
2: Yeah, we talk about self-sovereign identity systems as being able to create identifiers that are use case specific. The difference is, is that if I'm interacting in certain highly critical, highly valuable interactions, then I care about an identifier that, that meets those standards. If I'm interacting in other things, then just using a a uh, a library you know that's using libsodium for example to generate my public private key yeah, on my absolutely. pc is good enough so, so the difference is, is that we enable and uh we enable open standards and protocols and and market forces to to build something like the internet of identity as opposed to something that is top down managed and so that that is that is political but but you know i I kind of feel like i want to, i i don't want to i don't want to be subject to some government agency for my that controls my ability to interact with other people in a secure trusted fashion and that and that may be that may be where we agree to disagree
1: yeah what's really interesting about this and and i i want to you know be a half full guy rather than a half empty guy what's really interesting about self sovereign and the protocols that have being developed is that they're going to be very useful tools and there's very strong agreement on on a number of of patterns and um the idea of having known good hardware um, something that can self attest to um, its own provenance and its own um, you know state of manufacturing and the very idea that we need to be able to reliably digitally sign assertions or claims or whatever you want to call it and make sure that the Signature is verifiable because you know that the, the signatures come from a known good private key. There's such common agreement across all of this, whether you're running a highly centralised top-down PKI, whether you're running a, um, a totally decentralised SSI environment, um, all of these patterns are, are, um, are settling out. So th- I think in the next five to 10 years, we're going to see some tremendous ranges of tools and protocols and standards and chips that people can, can build their stack out of.
2: Yeah, I agree. I think that zero trust computing is going to find a home and replace a lot of the, the complex systems, the perimeter security model, you know, systems, but, the, but those entities will still exist. They'll still provide, they'll, they'll still provide, you know, tools and ability to help companies, you know, do things in certain ways. They'll just use uh, a different security model. That is more similar to SSI than it is different.
0: I'm going to uh to pause there and thank Steve for his time with us. Uh, this has turned into, you know, a, a long discussion, but I think appropriately so. I think if someone saw the length of this podcast and the topic, you know, dealing with SSI versus Federation, and saw that we thought we'd wrapped up that topic in 20 minutes, they would be suspicious. Um, it's a, it's a big, (laughs) deep topic. It remains unsolved. And the thing I love about talking to you, Steve, is, is you're open-minded, you're, you're opinionated, you're informed, but you're professional and you remain open-minded. And I've seen you change your mind specifically on SSI. I think you're fair in, in your criticisms and fair in your questions. And I appreciate it. And I thank you very much for coming on to the show today.
1: You're too kind, Timothy. Thank you.
2: Yeah, I, I uh, one of the reasons I didn't say much in the introduction is is that I I I really was interested in found what you had to say very very informative. So I I, I wanted to make sure I understood what you were saying. And
0: no, he he didn't start throwing fireballs like he does on Twitter. It's kind of fun to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, cheers, Sam. I appreciate that, and um, yeah, I I, I hope I'm here to help. No, I I think so. Hey,
0: Steve, thank you so much. Sam, thanks for for helping uh, yeah. provide some reinforcement. We did geek out a little bit, but there's certainly some people in the audience that are going to very much appreciate that discussion. Yeah, that,
2: that's that's my weakness is I tend I tend to I tend to go go. That's go okay. There that's fast. okay.
0: You balance me out, so it's it's a good thing. And and the cool thing about Steve is he actually can swing to both extremes. So he he's got that that kind of breadth. Thanks again, Steve. Have a wonderful day. And and thank you for coming on to Breaking
1: Silos. Thanks, Timothy. Thanks for having me.
0: This has been another episode of Breaking Silos. If you have any feedback, ideas, or questions about the show or this episode, or working with us at Digital Trust Ventures, we invite you to visit digitaltrust.vc and get in touch. Thanks for listening.